0: Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at WildwoodChurch.org. If you've been around Wildwood the last number of weeks, you know that we have been walking through the Sermon on the Mount. This Sermon that Jesus preached recorded for us in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And in this message that Jesus preached fairly early on in his public ministry, we see a summary of much of what Jesus taught at the early days of his public earthly ministry. And most recently in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, we have seen that Jesus was teaching us about our religious life, how it is that we are to, to live out our Our religious life on this earth. And specifically, we saw how Jesus wanted us to orient our religious life primarily in a vertical direction. In other words, we fast or we pray for an audience of God not so that others would think we are more spiritual. That we we give to the glory of God not so that others would think that we are more spiritual. And we've seen that over the last number of weeks. Most recently, last Sunday, we looked at the topic of prayer. And we saw how Jesus taught us to pray. And specifically, he said that we are not to pray as the Pharisees pray. And the Pharisees prayed, if you remember, in a way that was very ostentatious. They would pray primarily to an audience of their peers so that their peers would think that they are more spiritual. They would stand on the street corners. They would stand in the synagogue and they would pray out loud so that others would admire them. And Jesus said, don't pray like the Pharisees. And Jesus also said, don't pray like the Gentiles. People who would just babble on repetitively, mindless phrases, thinking that somehow their length or their volume might incline God to hear their prayers. Jesus said, don't pray like the Pharisees, don't pray like the Gentiles, but instead Jesus says, pray like a Christian, which, which makes sense, right? As followers of Christ, we should pray as Jesus would instruct us to pray, But Jesus did not just say, pray like a Christian and leave it at that. Jesus actually gave definition and structure around what it looks like for his followers to pray. And that structure that he gave is what we know of as the Lord's Prayer. And it's found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15, and we're going to look at that together uh, this morning here in just a moment. But before we do that, I think we ought to just thank God, because Jesus gives us direction in prayer. Um, Many times in our prayer life, we are frustrated or it is just more absent than we want it to be. We we don't pray as much as we think we should. And sometimes that is because we're just not natural prayers and we need some instruction to help get us out on the prayer floor, if you will. Uh, An illustration, crude though it is, that maybe will help us understand this, has to do with dancing. Now, I, I don't know about you, but When was the last time you were near a dance floor? For some of you, I can tell it's been a long time. Uh, But let's just imagine that we're at a dance floor. The last time that I was at a dance floor was around a wedding reception. That's typically where I'm in situations like that at this point in my life. But I've noticed something about gathering around a dance floor. And what I've noticed is that when you gather around a dance floor, the DJ is trying to coax people out to dance. But early on, nobody is going out to dance. The only people that are out there are the people that just can't help but bust a move, all right? Uh, Or the the, the four and five-year-olds that just can't help but bounce to the the rhythm of the beat, whatever it is. That's who's out there early. But how is it that the people who are currently on the sidelines end up on the dance floor? After going to a number of weddings and studying this, I think I have an answer to that question. The way you get the non-dancers to dance is simple. You play YMCA. That's how you do it. That's how you get us out there. Now, now here's why, and this is, this is I, I believe this, friends, I believe this, you get us out there to dance because even my grandma knows how to spell with her arms, okay, you know, Y-M-C-A, we, we know how to do that. So because there's a moment in the dance where we know we're not gonna look stupid or at least no more stupid than the person next to us, we're gonna be doing the right thing and it invites us out on the dance floor and it gives us confidence and if that song doesn't work, We've invented new songs like the Cupid Shuffle or the Cha-Cha Slide that tell us dance moves because that kind of direction gives us confidence. And I say all that, again, in in a kind of a crude analogy, but the reality is there are some in the room right now that you are just natural prayers. You can't help but pray, and you could pray for hours and hours and hours, but there are many others of us who sit on the side of the prayer floor and don't know how to get out there and get started because we don't know what to say. Friends, if that's you, praise the Lord. Jesus says, this is how we are to pray. This is what it looks like to pray as a Christian. And he gives us instruction in what we know of as the Lord's prayer. Now, what's interesting about this prayer, we're going to read it in just a moment and then unpack it. But what's interesting is we need to remember this prayer in its context, you see, just a little bit ago, we recited the Lord's Prayer together as a part of our time of prayer. And, and many of you may have grown up in an environment where you recited the Lord's Prayer every Sunday as a part of your church experience. That was the way that I grew up. I uh, know that's the way that many of you grew up as well. But but here's the, the challenge when you repeat a prayer over and over and over again is it's possible that we can repeat it and the words are coming out of our mouth, but we're not engaging our minds as we say it. We're mindlessly repeating certain phrases. And if that is the case, then we are no better than the Gentiles in how we pray. Jesus wants something better. So when Jesus teaches us the Lord's Prayer, it certainly is a pattern that we could repeat word for word. There's nothing wrong with that, but it also can serve as an outline to instruct us on how we might pray. And so hopefully by reading it and by looking at its meaning this morning, we will get on the same page with Christ. We will hear his instruction that we might get out on the prayer floor together. So let me read these verses for us and then we'll back up and look at a little more in depth their meaning. Matthew chapter six, beginning in verse nine, Jesus says this, pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation But deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And in these few verses, we have what we know of as the Lord's Prayer. Now, I want us to see a couple of things about prayer that really provide for us an outline for prayer from these verses. The first thing I want us to see is this. As we pray, we need to begin by looking up. As we pray, we need to begin by looking up. Now, this teaching that Jesus has on prayer, this Lord's Prayer, is really divided into two sets of three uh, requests, two sets of three requests each. And the first set of three requests relate primarily vertically, looking to God and, and His direction the second half of the prayer relate more horizontally looking around our world for our requests but it's interesting that the prayer begins with us looking up and addressing god directly seeking his will seeking his kingdom and seeking that his name would be glorified that's where it begins we are to begin our prayer by looking up here's the thing if we're not talking to god then we're not praying that's why it's so important for us to remember who we're talking to at the outset of our time of prayer. Jesus wants us to begin our prayer by looking up and remembering who we're talking to. Now as he does that, he, he instructs us by reminding us who we're speaking with. And who we're speaking with is our Father in heaven. That's how he begins the instruction, our Father in heaven. Now, I want to make a few observations about that phrase. First of all, I want to make observation about that word, our. It's interesting that prayer begins with the word our. Our is not my. It's our. There is community that is implied here. God is our heavenly father. He's not just my heavenly father. He's not even just father. He's our father together. He's my father and he's Amy's father. And we gather together around him. He's my father, and he's Wayne's father. We gather together around him. It's important for us to remember the community that comes there. As we gather and pray, not only is our prayer joining with those who are in this room that we know, but our prayers are joined together with those brothers and sisters in North Africa or the Middle East who know Christ as their Savior. In that sense, our prayers are joined together and they all have made an audience before God and he hears them all and he cares for them all. As we pray, we need to remember that there's an hour in this prayer. In that sense, there really is no private prayer. I mean, we might pray a prayer privately, but it's joined together in a chorus of prayers from people all over the earth. He's our Father. Second word in that phrase, Father. Of all of the descriptions that Jesus could have given us, To focus our attention at the beginning of this prayer, he uses the word Father. Now, I think that is a wonderful term because it talks about a nearness and a closeness and a love. We're to remember that as we pray. Now, when I say the word Father, this is a, a room that is full of many different people who have come from many different backgrounds, and that word Father means something different to all of you. For some of you, it means the person that walked out on you or the person who abused you, but for others, it means something positive. So here's what I want us to do to get us all on the same page. I want everybody for a moment to imagine the best father that you know, the the best example of a father that you know. Guys, you can't say yourself. Imagine the best father that you know. Just think of it. It might be your dad. It might be your friend's dad growing up. It it might be somebody in, in church that you know. It might be a character on a television show or in a movie. But think for a moment who the best expression of a father is. Now, imagine this. Our Heavenly Father is better than the best. So, whatever your idea is, ratchet it up even further past that high water mark, and you've got your Heavenly Father. You got one who cares. You got one who listens. You got one who comforts. You got one who who leans in. That's who we're addressing in prayer. I I remember uh, growing up. When I, would, when I would call home, many times uh, my mom would be the one who answered. And if I ever said, Can I talk to dad? You know what that meant? That meant something was wrong. Um, but I would want to talk to my dad in those moments because of the care. I had a wonderful earthly dad. But just, just imagine this picture of our Heavenly Father. We get to go before Him, we get to, to talk to Him directly. We go to our Heavenly Father better than the best. That we can imagine. Not only that, but it says, Our Heavenly Father who is in heaven. Now, what, what is this idea of heaven? Why does he say that? It's to remind us that even though we have this close connection to our Father, he sits enthroned over all, he has dominion over all things, he, he sits enthroned in heaven. So not only is he inclined to listen to us, but he is able to do something about the things that we're mentioning. He's worthy of our adoration. He's able to answer our requests. So as we pray, Jesus wants us to begin by remembering who we're talking to, by looking up and remembering that our prayer is going to our Father in heaven. Now after that introduction, Jesus talks in the first section of the prayer by giving three requests in the your category, three yours, your name, your kingdom, and your will, all with a God perspective, three requests. The first request is for your name. It says, hallowed be your name. Now, what is Jesus talking about when he says that? Well, he's inviting us to pray, and as we pray, to remember that God's name is holy. Our our prayer to God is is not something that makes God's name holy. He is holy. But as we pray, we are to remind ourselves of his holiness, of his hallowedness, of his greatness, and we are to declare that to him as we begin our prayer so that, again, we look up and we remember who who we're praying to. Now, you know, it's interesting. It's easy for us to forget who we're praying to. It's easy for us to forget who we're talking to. And so sometimes we need to just pause and imagine a a scene or a setting for our time of prayer. I was thinking about just how, in in our world in which we live, there are certain settings where we can't help but realize uh, the the power that exists in a certain room. Uh, You know, I I was thinking of a quote. I got to be honest with you. I was thinking of a quote uh, earlier about how the Oval Office is. The most impressive home court advantage in the world. And I remember thinking, I've heard that quote someplace. I wonder which famous president said that the Oval Office is the greatest home court advantage in all the world. So I Googled it. You know what I found? You know who the president was who said that? Michael Douglas in The American President said that. Um, (laughs) But you can imagine if you were having a meeting in the Oval Office, you couldn't help but remember that you're talking to the president of the United States of America. I think by Jesus instructing us to begin our prayers, remembering our heavenly father, but also praying that his name would be hallowed, that we'll remember where we are. We're in the throne room of God. We're in the presence of greatness. And we spend some time just declaring his greatness to him as we pray. The next thing that Jesus says after he asks us to pray for the name of God, he asks us to pray for the kingdom of God. Verse 10, the second, your your kingdom come. Now, what's this phrase talking about? Well, it's helpful for us to remember this word kingdom and how Jesus has already used it inside of his ministry. If you remember just a few weeks ago when we've been walking through the gospel of Matthew, we saw that Jesus began preaching, and one of the very first things that Jesus preached early on was a very simple message, and the first word of that message began with the letter R. Does anybody remember what it was? Second letter E, third one P, somebody. Somebody. Repent. The very first word was repent because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Jesus talked about the kingdom. And the appropriate response to the fact that the kingdom was right at the doorstep was for people to repent. The reason why Jesus said that is because the idea of the kingdom was tied to this Old Testament idea of the day of the Lord and the coming judgment of God upon the earth. When all that was wrong would be set right. When all that was sinful would be judged When God's reign would be set up forevermore. That was the idea of the kingdom. And I think when Jesus talks here about praying for your kingdom come, what Jesus is saying is really an admission that all of us are living in a world that is broken. All of us are living in a world that is stained by sin. All of us are are living in a world that is challenging to us in so many different ways. And as we pray, we are to remember that our hope is not found only here, but our hope is found in what God will do later in the coming and the establishing of the kingdom. And so there is hope inside of this prayer. When we pray for your kingdom to come, in one sense we are praying for God's judgment to come, but we are also praying for his justice to come We're praying for that day when the lion will lay down with the lamb, when the wrong will be made right, and when the rule of God will be realized on the earth forever. We we find hope in that, friends. As we pray, as we look up, we remember not just now, but we remember later. If you remember earlier in our series on Matthew, we talked about setting our clocks to kingdom standard time, looking forward to the day when the rule of God will be realized upon the earth. As we pray and as we think about the challenges of this earth, it ought to make us long for Christ's return. Your name, your kingdom. Lastly, we see Jesus make a request for your will, second half of verse 10. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, what is this request all about? Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Sometimes people have read this and they they think that it is speaking about some kind of supernatural phenomena, about healing. If if there's going to be healing in eternity, that means that healing must come now. The will of God from heaven done on earth. But I don't think that's the primary emphasis of this aspect of request. I think that what Jesus is actually teaching us here is he's reminding us that there is direction in teaching that God has given to us. And really what the prayer is about is about obedience being lived out among God's people. The the will of God would be known by His people and would be embraced in an obedient fashion so that God's ways would be demonstrated upon the earth. I, I think that's the general idea. It's a prayer for obedience. It's a prayer for God's people to follow Him. And so as Jesus begins the prayer, He invites us to look up And to remember the name of God, the kingdom of God, and the will of God. Now, how do we apply these ideas? Now, interestingly, I'll just say this. There is one application you can lay over the top of all of this message today, friends, and that application is very simple. Pray, right? Jesus taught this not so that we wouldn't pray. He taught this so we would pray, so that we would get out on the dance floor and we would pray. But what are some other applications we might see? The first application we might see is focus on God. Remember who we're praying to. You know, I don't know if you're like this, but I'm like this. When I talk, sometimes those who know me well can tell who I'm talking to without even knowing who I'm talking to, just by the way that I'm talking. You know, when when I'm at my house and the phone rings and I pick it up and I answer, if it's my parents, my wife knows. Without me ever saying, without ever seeing the number that was on the screen, if this the way I talk to my parents, she knows who I'm talking to. I don't know if you're, you're like that in your house. I had a bunch of friends who were from the great city of Ada. If you're from Ada, that's awesome. I love Ada. I had a bunch of friends from college who were from Ada. But here's what's interesting. When I would talk to my friends from Ada in college, and then I would talk to somebody else, my accent actually got stronger after I did that, Right? There's just a sense where you can tell uh, who you're talking to, and it it shows forth in our actions. As we pray, friends, remember who you're talking to. Focus our attention on God. Look up. Remember him. A second thing I think that we can do by application is this. Try saying one attribute of God before you begin to pray. We, we tried this at, at my house over the weekend as we gathered to pray. Even last night, we had one of Josh's friends over. There were four of us around the table. And before we began to pray, we just went around and we said, okay, uh, everybody say one attribute of God. God is good. God is, is loving. God is creative. God is forgiving. And we, we said those things. And then we, would, we said, okay, now let's pray. And we say, Lord, thank you for being good, creative, loving, and forgiving. And we thank you for how you have provided us this beautifully colored meal that we're getting ready to eat on and on. But just take a moment to to focus our attention on who God is. Remember who He is. Declare it out loud. Share it together. Encourage one another with this truth. Say an attribute of God before you pray. A third idea that I think by application is important for us to see is that we need to remember that we are communicating with a personal God, not an impersonal force. When we think of a name, a kingdom, and a will, we are not talking about just some higher power. We're talking about a personality. We're talking about our heavenly father. And sometimes in prayer, one of the obstacles we, we face is that we forget that we're talking to someone who can actually listen and, and respond. And so we're not inspired to communicate. Who's inspired to communicate to your computer? We might yell at it at times, but no real relationship there. But with, with God, it's different. How do we communicate? Remember that as we go before Him. So, the beginning of this prayer, the three requests that are your specific, God's specific, invite us to begin by looking up. But the second half of the prayer goes like this we are to continue our prayer by looking around. Continue our prayer by looking around. What I mean by that is Jesus invites us to look around at our life, look around our world, and, and bring the requests and the needs that we see around us before God in prayer. You know, sometimes when we teach on prayer, uh, we, we make ourselves feel bad about making our requests to God because we think, hey, our prayer needs to honor God I we mean, need to lift up his name, and that's true. But sometimes we think, man, my prayers are just so selfish because all I ever pray for are my requests. Now, if all we ever pray for are our requests, then our prayer life very certainly might be out of balance. But it's interesting that Jesus wants us to make our requests known to him. He wants us to. He doesn't tolerate our requests. He commands us to make requests. Isn't that interesting? He, He desires us to make our requests. So after the first part of the prayer focuses our attention up, the second part of the prayer focuses our attention out. Now, I very intentionally said out and not in, because our prayer life should include reflection on our own life, but it also should include prayer for those around us. Remember, it is our Father. These prayers are for us and not plural, not us individual. And so Jesus gives us some instruction on the things that we are to request of God. The first request, These are again, these are three us's. So we had the three yours, now the three us's. The three us's, give us, forgive us, and lead us. The first us is the give us, verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, what's Jesus talking about there? He's saying that we are to go before God in a daily fashion and to ask for the things we need for that day. Bread being representative of the things that are necessary for life. We could substitute in there water. We could substitute in their shelter. We could substitute in there whatever we think we need for the day. That is the idea here, that there is an opportunity for us on a daily basis to go before God and to express our needs before Him that He might provide them for us. And so, in some instances, we will do that with related to food. And the less food we have, the more frequently we are to make that request. Isn't that true? Have you ever been in that spot where you didn't know where your next meal was coming from? You pray a little more fervently in that moment, right? But the principle still holds. I'm mindful of uh, George Mueller when I think of this idea. George Mueller um, lived in the 1800s, the end, end of the 1800s, and he ran orphan houses in England, and one of the things that that George Mueller did was he was a man of great prayer, and he always brought his requests before God in prayer, really to an audience of one. He didn't even make those requests in his lifetime known to others, but he would write them down in his journals. What's fascinating is when you look back at George Mueller's prayer journals, you see that there were over 50,000 specific answers to prayer that he saw. And one of the answers to prayer that he saw uh, had to do with a time when they had no food to feed the orphans. And so they had no food in their cupboards, but it was breakfast time and the kids were hungry. So Mueller lined up the kids at the breakfast line and he gathered, gathered them around and he prayed and he said, Lord, we thank you for this delicious food that you have provided for us today. Amen. There's no food on the counter when he says amen, but right after he says amen, a knock comes on the door. So they open the door. On the other side is someone who took the milk wagon around. He said, my my wagon has broken down and I'm not able to get my milk back. It will spoil. Is there anyone inside who could use some milk? They said, absolutely. They took the milk inside and the the kids had milk. And then down the street, the baker is woken in a dream the night before. God has instructed him in the dream to, to bring bread down to the orphan house, and so the bread is gathered up and brought, and the kids had bread and milk for breakfast. Now, friends, that is give us this day our daily bread. Now, our stories are not always as dramatic as that, but here's the principle that we need to see. Mueller's weren't always that dramatic either, but the principle is still solid. We go before the Lord daily and we ask him for the things that we need for the day, and daily the Lord is able to provide. God doesn't just give us everything we need in one shot, and then we go and live our own lives independent of him using the resources that he gave us. That is the the pattern of life that the prodigal had. Remember that, the prodigal son? In the story he said, Father, give me all of your stuff, and then I'm going to leave you in relationship with you and go and use your stuff someplace else. How did that work out for him? Not well, right? Eventually, he ends up with a need of reconciliation to his father. In the same way, God has set up the world in such a way that we need to stay connected to him, that daily he is able to provide for our needs. And so, if our needs are food, we ask him for food. As our our needs are for uh, grace and mercy and peace and forgiveness, we go before him and we make those requests. You know what your needs are today. Right now, today, you have needs. You have a conversation that you're going to have over lunch. You've got tension waiting for you at home. You've got a bill that needs to be paid, and you don't know where the money's going to come from. We all have needs every day, and Jesus says, don't just hang on to those, but bring those to me and ask that I would give you this day your daily bread. The first request is to give us our daily bread. The second request that we see in this horizontal plane plane as we look around has to do with forgiveness, forgive us. He says, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, what is it that he's getting at there? Well, this idea of, of forgiveness is interesting in as it relates to Christians. Because all of us as, as followers of Christ, if you have trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, how many of your sins have already been forgiven? Some of them or all of them? The answer is all of them. In in, in a sense, when, when Christ died on the cross, all of our sins, all of Mark Robinson's sins, you know, all of Jeff Bradley's sins, all of our sins were all future when Jesus died. And yet, as the omnipotent God, he knew about them and he died anyway. And so his death, when we trust him, covers all of our sins. Paul will talk about this in the book of Romans and in other places as a forensic-style forgiveness, a declaration of our righteousness. When we trust in Christ, our sins, past, present, and future, are already forgiven. So the question is, when we pray, why do we need to pray and ask for forgiveness? If God has already forgiven us in Christ, past, present, and future, why is it that we go before him for asking forgiveness? Now, it's not because of a forensic declaration as much as it is about a familial connection. So as followers of God who are already connected to God through Christ, there still is a need for us to confess our sin, similar to what John says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. The idea is that there can be things that can cause some some tension in the day-to-day interaction of our relationship with God if there is unconfessed sin that is there. In other words, if we're sinning and rebelling against God, even as Christians, even as people who are ultimately forgiven, it can cause some daily momentary rub with God. Now, we know this is true. If you have children, you love your kids. If you're married, you, you love your spouse. If you've got a good friend, you love your friend. But let me ask you, if they are doing something to harm you and it's not addressed, does it create a little bit of a relational rub? Gets a little icy around the dinner table. We get a little frustrated in our interaction with them. That's the idea. We're to keep a quick and and close account of our sin before God. Then on a daily basis, we go to him and we ask for forgiveness for our sins. We're reminded that, that though Jesus died way before our sins were ever committed, when we commit our sins, it still had a cost and it still grieves our father. And so we go before him and we ask for his forgiveness for our sins and he is willing to grant it. But here's the thing. This is so interesting. After making that statement, what does Jesus say? He says, forgive us our debt." Says, we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, if that wasn't enough, he doubles down in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So what's this all about? Is it saying that if we don't forgive somebody who has wronged us that, that God will kick us out of heaven, and our eternity is somehow no longer secure. No, I don't think that's the idea at all. Remember, we're talking here about a familial connection. The idea is if we are unforgiving towards those around us, that it will cause relational rub with God. It'll create some tension in our relationship with Him. As we go before God daily and we ask for forgiveness from our sins... It ought to also inspire us to be forgiving to those around us. And if we are unforgiving to God's children, at the same time we're asking forgiveness from God, we will end up with some things that are clogging that artery. Does that make sense? Jesus is challenging us that as we seek the regular forgiveness of God for the familial connection with our heavenly Father, that we also are to be forgiving to others in the pattern of the way that he has forgiven us. Third request after give us forgive us the third request to lead us it says in verse thirteen lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil uh, these two things it looks like two separate things but really I, I think grammatically we're talking about one request leading us not into temptation and delivering us from evil is is really one idea and. Without getting too far into the weeds, it's important to note in the original language at the very end of this phrase, you look at the very end, right before the word evil at the end of the sentence, there's that word from. It's interesting that that word from, there are different Greek words that could have been used, but the word that is used there is the word that is always used before a person and not a thing, a person and not a thing. So a a good translation of this sentence would actually be, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Who is it that he's referring to? Deliver us from Satan. And what does Satan do? Satan wants to tempt us. The the, the temptation earlier in this passage is is not temptation that comes from God. God does not tempt his people. It is temptation that comes from Satan. Satan. We, we are to know that there is an enemy who seeks to devour us, who seeks to lead us into sin and to tear us down. And Jesus says, as you pray, remember to ask God for his deliverance, for his protection from the evil one as you pray. And here's what's beautiful, friends. When I, when I begin to talk about Satan and, and his possible influence to lead us into temptation, to lead you into pornography, to lead you into an affair, to lead you into living for yourself and not others. All of those things, we think about that. It's, it's, It's a scary thought to think that there is an enemy that is actually out to seek and to devour us, as Peter says in his epistle. That's a scary thought. But here's what's great. God's greater. It's not even a fair fight. We're talking about the God of the universe. Remember, we begin our prayer by looking up. We remember who God is, how great He is. And so when we remember our enemy, it should cause us to seek dependence upon God because Satan may be greater than us, but He's not greater than our Heavenly Father. And so as we pray, we pray for God's spiritual leadership, for His spiritual protection to guide us away from the schemes of the evil one and towards His path for our lives. Friends, as we pray, we're to bring our requests to God. Now, What are some applications of this? I'll I'll mention these quickly, just kind of to recap. One of those applications is this. We are to make our requests known to God. Are you making your requests known to God? Or are you just hanging on to them and having them drive you to anxiety and despair? You're not built to handle them alone. We're built to bring them to our Father. Make your requests known to Him. Second thing. Are you regularly seeking forgiveness from God? Not to establish our relationship, though if you don't know Christ, know that that relationship can be established. But if you already know Christ, know this. We still have a need to go and to confess our sins regularly for that familial connection. And as we are asking for that forgiveness, are we remembering to forgive those around us? Third application we see, are we expressing our need for spiritual protection? Friends, we're not strong enough on our own to resist the enemy, but our Father can take care of it for us. We're expressing our dependence upon him in all things. Now, when we go through the Lord's Prayer and we talk about it and we see the pattern that Jesus gives us for how to pray as a Christian prays, we would be remiss if we did not actually pray together. And so, I want us to end our service a little different than we normally do. I want us to end by praying. And so, would you stand as we are getting ready to close out? Um, just to, standing up, friends, is not because we have to stand when we pray. Sometimes you kneel, sometimes you sit, sometimes uh, you stand. But, but standing right now is just to get us all on the same page. We're We're all engaged right now, okay? So, I'm going to walk us through the outline that Jesus had. And as I do, I want you to just spend a few moments silently praying according to this pattern, okay? This may be the first prayer that you've ever prayed. This, this could be the 10,000th you know, prayer of this month. But, but let's just take a few moments and pray uh, together. So at first, as we, as we bow and as we pray, I want you just to, to think about an attribute of God it could be just our father, but it it could also be something about his character, uh, his his power, his his love, his his grace, whatever it is, and and express that reality to him. And as we remember who it is that we are talking to, and remember his name, that is hallowed and we're in His presence now, I want you to think for a moment about a a point of discouragement in your world. It could be the way that things are playing out circumstantially around you. It could be a health concern. It could be an injustice that you've seen. Uh, Just think about the brokenness that you've seen in the world and then declare to God how you long for His ways to be established upon the earth. Father, we pray for your kingdom to come. And also, I want you to think for a moment about some of the declarations that Jesus has given to us that we are called to obey. And I want you to think about some of the the challenges that you see in obeying God's word in your own life as well as in the life of those around you. And I want you to spend just a moment praying for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want you now to think about your day. The day ahead of you includes many needs, no doubt. I want you to think about your needs for today, at least one specific need. Think about that. And take a moment asking God to give us today our daily bread. now I want you to think about sin in your life, things that you have done in the last day or or week that have fallen short of God's perfect standard. And I want you to take a moment and ask Him for forgiveness. And also ask Him to Reveal to us any situation where we need to forgive. And finally, I want you to think about situations and areas of your life where you're trying to go it alone, but you need God's leading and protecting from the schemes of the evil one. And I want you to pray for, and ask God for his leadership and his protection. Father, we are thankful that You have taught us to pray, and we're also thankful even as uh, the church has taken an extended uh, amen to this, pulled it from one of David's prayers, appropriately so. I I, I pray that all of these things that we have lifted up, that they would be done uh, according to Your kingdom come, the power and the glory that are only Yours forever and ever. And we all say, amen. Friends, thank you for worshiping with us today. If you'd like somebody to pray with you in an extended way, there be a few of us up here after the service. We'd love to pray with you. Otherwise, we'll see you next Sunday, 945 or 11 o'clock.